Failure is always an option. This is the famous quote from Adam Savage, one of the guys from the Mythbusters TV show. I quite enjoy Mythbusters as a TV show because they start out with a myth, then they set about to test if the myth could be actually true. The best ones, of course, involve myths of explosions or of things blowing up, and there are lots of explosions on the show. So first, what they do is they, they begin talking as, as hosts of this TV show and, and explain the myth and how it came to be. And, you know, if there's any videos of things on YouTube or those, they show them and, and give you some information. And then they come up with a way of testing the myth, what, you know, and what might be required uh, to reproduce the results of the myth. This often involves a fair bit of trial and error as they try different setups and, and etc. And, and it really involves a lot of use of slow motion cameras. And if they can't reproduce the results of the, the myth within the realm of normal, they then amp it up to the extreme and, and try and reproduce the mythical results. And they then conclude the show and determine if each myth is confirmed, plausible, or busted. And in a way, it's kind of like what Paul has been doing from chapter 1 through 5 of Romans with, with a doctrine of justification by faith. He's de delved into every aspect of it. And in the last half of chapter 5, Paul focuses now pretty much on the big picture, his final conclusion and defence for the reality that the gospel brings us life. Justification by faith in Jesus gives believers life. In these verses, Paul does not look primarily at what individual sinners have done, which had been what is, he'd been looking at until now. Rather, he looks at what Adam did in the fall and what Jesus Christ did at the cross and the consequences of their actions for humanity. Adam's act resulted in his descendants sinning and dying. We inherit Adam's nature that was sinful, and this accounts for the fact that we all sin and we all die. We are sinners, not only because we commit acts of sin, but also because Adam's sin corrupted the human race and made sin and punishment inevitable for his descendants as well as for himself. However, Christ's act of dying made all who trust in him righteous apart from their own works. And that is what brings us life. And so as we begin today, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves now before you and, and your word. We submit to your holy scriptures and to their teaching. Lord, we ask right now that you remove from us any pride or anything that might stop us from hearing the message of your scriptures today. Let your word sink deeply into our soul today and may we be encouraged and inspired by your message of hope and life from these verses in Romans. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles open, uh, if you've got your Bibles there, open them up with me to Romans chapter 5, and we are beginning with verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, 
and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses and even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. These words are a bit confusing at times. But what we see is that Adam's sin had a powerful effect on humanity, more than, than simply that of a bad example. He's not a story of someone who, you know, we can learn from as, as the bad example and do the good. No, no, no. His power of his sin had great effect on us all. It resulted in his descendants inheriting a sinful human nature, which accounts in large part for our sinfulness. It also resulted in our being born in a state of sinfulness. Paul compared the manner in which death entered the world through sin with the manner in which it spread to everyone also through sin. Death is universal because sin is universal. But how would this have been received by the Jews whose understanding was so tied up with the law of Moses and sin being so connected there? Well, Paul helps to explain that people died before God gave the Mosaic law. So before Moses, people died. Their argument may be that if there's no law, then there can be no transgression of law. And so why did those people die before they had the law? Well, the answer is they died because they sinned in Adam. Adam transgressed God's law in the Garden of Eden. And ever since then, his descendants, which we're all from, his descendants have transgressed God's moral law. Something we looked at a few weeks ago, like, you know, our conscience. So they've, they've transgressed God's moral law, not just the Mosaic law. And this accounts for the universality of death. This is often re referred to as original sin. And Paul does teach here that sin is imparted to us from birth as it is part of our human nature inherited from Adam. Now, the idea that people should involuntarily suffer punishment because of the sins of another person is pretty repugnant to us. It might also seem unjust and, and even offensive. Like if you sinned, why would someone else suffer punishment? Like if I robbed a bank, but the cops... I don't know, put, put Lyle in prison or, or Heather or, or little Jane, it doesn't seem right, does it? Nevertheless, as the head of the human race, Adam's actions resulted in consequences that his descendants, all of us, had to bear. Likewise, any representation, uh, representative leader's decision results in consequences his followers must bear. For example... When our governor decides to sign into law some piece of legislation that has passed through both houses of parliament, it becomes binding on everyone under his authority as representative of the queen. In America, when the president signs a law, it becomes binding on everyone under his authority, on Americans. It is just one of the facts of life that we all suffer the consequences of the decisions 
of those who have preceded us and are over us. So death, death is our deserved consequence for sin. This is the position of all humanity from the moment that Adam sinned. And we personally, we personally have sinned also. So death is our reserved destiny, our deserved destiny. But that's not the whole story. Because our story doesn't stop there. Thank goodness, thank God. Literally. You know, when one man fails in the accomplishment of God's purpose, God raises up another to take his place. Think about Joshua. He replaced Moses. David to replace Saul. Elisha to replace Elijah. And God raised up Jesus to replace Adam. And we see this explained from verse 15. Now, now I'm going to switch over to the NLT for verses 15 and 16. The NLT, because the ESV, which I've been using, is a bit clunky. Is it, it, it's very literal. It's a very literal, trying to be word-for-word word translation, whereas the NLT is more of a meaning-for-meaning meaning translation. It's more understandable in this case, and, and, and it's pretty spot-on. So I'm going to, just from verses 15 and 16, the NLT, and then I'm concluding this with verse 17, but back to the ESV for that, because we can understand the ESV for that. So let's go. Verse 15 from the NLT. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. Back to the ESV for verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass or sin, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So what Paul's doing here is he is contrasting Adam and Jesus. He's contrasting the transgression or sin of one man, Adam, and the free gift. The act of one man, Jesus Christ, had such a greater effect on people from that of Adam's. You know, Jesus Christ not only cancelled the effects of Adam's sin, but he provided more than Adam lost or even possessed before the fall. He provided the righteousness of God. In Adam's case, a single sin by one man, a single individual, was sufficient to bring condemnation to the whole human race. In Christ's case, one act of obedience which the transgressions of many people made necessary was sufficient to bring justification 
to all those who believe in him. Death and life are the contrasting consequences of Adam's act and Christ's act. Through Adam's act of sin, our consequence is death. Yet through Christ's act on the cross, our consequence is life. And life victorious over death. And that doesn't begin when this earthly tent that we occupy now passes away and and we go to be with the Lord. No, no, no. It begins now. For believers, we are already justified by the person and work of Jesus Christ by faith. And so we have already been united with Christ's life and victory over death. Our destiny has changed. The free gift of righteousness through Christ means that we now reign in life. Glorious. What a glorious hope that is. The gospel of life, the good news that the free gift of righteousness through Christ means that we now reign in life. And Paul continues the contrast, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul contrasts the extents of Adam's act and Christ's act. Condemnation came upon all people with Adam and justification came upon all people who believe in Christ. For those of us who who believe in Jesus, we have gone from an inheritance of condemnation from Adam to inheritance of life through the justification God declares over us by faith in Jesus. But let's look into the condemnation condition a bit more. There are really three reasons why all human beings, except Christ, are guilty before God. First, God imputed, God gave Adam's guilt to each of his descendants. This is called original sin. It's a legal matter. Just as children who are born in any given country are automatically governed by conditions that that country's forefathers set in motion, so people who are born in Adam's race automatically fall under conditions that Adam set in motion. Second, every human being is born with a human nature that has been defiled by sin. This is called our sin nature. This is an inheritance matter. And the third, every person commits acts of sin. This is personal sin. This is an individual matter. 
And so we are guilty before God in three ways. Legally with original sin, by inheritance, our sin nature, and personally through our personal sin. We are all condemned. But also through the personal work of Jesus Christ, for those of us who believe, we are all justified. You see, Adam disobeyed God. We read, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. His disobedience was a deliberate act. You see, some say that, that Eve, well, well, she was deceived. But Adam, he chose to eat the fruit. Deliberate disobedience. And Paul contrasts that with Christ. Christ obeyed God, as we read, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The obedience of Christ is a reference to his death as the ultimate act of obedience rather than to his life of obedience, since it is his death that saves us. Christ's death on the cross was the ultimate act of obedience to the Father. Think of the anguish Jesus was in on, on the night before he was crucified, where, where he, he was asking God, if possible, let this cup pass from him. But what were, what were the words of Jesus? What were his words? Not as I will, but as you will. Full submission on display. Even in the most severe moment of temptation Jesus had ever faced, where he even verbalizes, Lord, let this pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. It was his obedience in death that saves us. And the many spoken of here in this verse doesn't refer to everyone. Although all mankind has been placed in a position where God's righteousness can be attributed to them, as we saw last week, the many refers only to those who by faith believe in the person and work of Jesus personally. Only those who believe by faith will be made righteous. And there are many of them, millions and millions and millions of us globally. And in verse 20, Paul continues to sum up his whole point that he's been making since chapter 1. Paul writes, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. One of the purposes of the Mosaic law was to illuminate the sinfulness of people. It did so at least by exposing behaviour that was until then not obviously contrary to God's will. God did this to prove man's sinfulness to him. The law does not create, but it evokes sin. The fact and power of sin introduced into the world by Adam has not been decreased by the law, but given a new dimension as rebellion against the revealed, detailed will of God. The same could be said of all the scriptures which reveal to us the will of God and, and so doesn't create sin but evokes sin. And so we became more aware of what is sinful as God revealed more of himself to us. So as sin increased, God gave us grace. Grace abounded 
even more. When God provided Jesus Christ, he provided grace that far exceeded the sin that he exposed when he provided the law. Paul, his contrast here is significance. The law showed the significance of Adam's sin more clearly and God's provision of Christ showed the significance of God's grace more clearly. And verse 21, you could say, is the grand conclusion. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here Paul is contrasting dominions. The dominions of Adam's act and Christ's act. Sin reigning in death, and grace reigning to eternal life. Ultimately, we sin and die because Adam sinned and died. Jesus Christ's death has righteously removed both causes for condemnation, guilt for our sins and punishment for Adam's sin. And so now, with guilt for our sins removed and punishment for Adam's sin removed, All by the grace of God, we who believe have life and life eternal through Jesus Christ our Lord. As Paul writes later in chapter 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is where we stand before God. You know, over the last eight weeks, we have been on quite a journey. We have seen countless times that all of humankind is equal before God. For we have all sinned and fall short of his standards. The gospel is the greatest message of equality in our world. We are all equally sinful before God. And our due punishment is to receive God's wrath and death. Yet out of God's love for us, he provided Jesus whose death covered our sins and paid our penalty. Out of God's love for us, he made a way that we could be reconciled before him and have peace with God. But it is only by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ does God declare us righteous. Only by faith are we justified. And this truly is good news because it doesn't rely on us doing anything. It relies solely on the promises of God and the person and work of his son, Jesus. We have clearly seen that there is great power in the gospel. The gospel is a gospel of power, peace, justification, righteousness, faith, promise, hope and life because the gospel is the love of God poured out to us so that we can be reconciled to God and receive eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord by faith alone. And in the next three chapters of Romans, if you want to keep reading, which I really encourage you to do, Paul moves on from questions about why people need salvation. That's been covered. What God has has done to provide it and how we can appropriate it. He next explains 
that salvation involves more than a right standing before God, which justification brings. God also provides salvation from the present power of sin in the redeemed sinner's daily experience, in our daily experiences. Paul begins teaching about our experiences, those who are saved, and what impact that has on us. This is called progressive sanctification. Let me explain. When a sinner experiences redemption, we begin a process of progressive, practical sanctification. This is a process of progressively becoming more righteous or more holy in our daily experiences. But it's not automatic. It doesn't happen automatically. It involves growth and requires us as believers to cooperate with God to produce holiness in our daily lives. God leads us as believers and provides the enablement of the Holy Spirit for us to follow. But we must choose to follow and make sure uh, make use of the resources for sanctification that God provides. Our progressive sanctification, it will end either at death or the rapture, whichever occurs first. Then we will experience glorification as we stand physically in the presence of God. It is only at that point will our legal standing before God match our experience. And so as we close this series in Romans, there is a task ahead of us. The task is to live like our justification before God matters. We could from from this point easily go two ways. We could stand comfortably in the knowledge that our eternal destiny is secure through our faith in the person, in, in the saving work of Jesus and in the knowledge that God has declared us righteous, and we could then never change and just continue to do what we wanted because we have our ticket to heaven. Or we could do what God wants us to do, to make use of the resources that God provides to us to over time change and grow more like Jesus. So when it comes to the choices we make, it can be as simple as this. What choice honours God more? When it comes to how we use our time and setting our priorities, how much does honouring the Lord factor into those decisions? When it comes to how we speak and talk to other people, are we honouring God and making the best choices there? The greatest gift of progressive sanctification is that we have been given the indwelling Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin. And He convicts us of things that that don't sit right with God. He convicts us of the things that He would like us to change. You know, it's not up to other people to impose their standards on you unless you're clearly sinning with reckless abandon. But each of us, we have the Holy Spirit within us to guide us 
and to convict us of areas where we can choose a more God-honoring way of living and walk in the life of the gospel that God has given to us. So keep in the word. Keep reading the rest of Romans and more. Be encouraged as the Spirit convicts you with areas to change and live in a more God-honoring manner as the Spirit Spirit leads and guides. There is great power in the gospel. The power saves us by faith alone. Let's pray. Almighty God, we stand before you humbled by your work by your love, by your grace, by your mercy. We are humbled by all that you have given to us in the gospel. We are so appreciative of your power on display in the person and work of your son, Jesus. And we are oh so thankful to be declared righteous by faith in Jesus. May you help us continue to make choices which honour you more and more. Help us to live in the power, peace, justification, righteousness, faith, promise, hope and life of the gospel. May your spirit continue to lead us and guide us and continue to convict us of ways in which we can honour and glorify you more and more each day. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen indeed. Thank you for joining with us for this series in Romans. I uh, hope it's really been a blessing to you as it has been to me. I've loved going through and unpacking these five, first five chapters of the book. And maybe in the future we'll come and we'll, we'll do you know, the chapters six through eight and then even more in the future. But right now, I just want to thank you for joining with us for this series in Romans. I trust it's been a blessing. And I look forward to meeting you face to face very soon. Blessings.